You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, I just wanted to take a couple of minutes to review a little bit, won't do much, what we talked about last time, mainly to see if you have any thoughts or questions, and uh, maybe just to sort of highlight the one of the main issues that uh, came out of last, last week's study, and, and it's going to carry right on through everything else, and that is that we're looking to the Word itself for the rules of interpretation to interpret the Word, okay? Makes sense, right? God just didn't give us His Word and say, well, good luck, try to figure this out. He also, within the Word, um, gives us those uh, tools for understanding the Word, and we're going to be looking at that more uh, in the future. So did you have any thoughts or questions about what we went over last time? I know this is probably a fair amount of uh, information, and everything is kind of weighted up front in this study a little bit, the reading, most of it, and uh, so on, okay? And um, the uh, I, I won't spend a lot of time talking about the reading the, uh, from the textbook, from Dr. Zuck's book, unless you have some questions about it. It's kind of pretty much going to go along parallel. There's going to be some overlap. And, um, but uh, if there's no other thoughts and, or questions, okay, I have some for you. Page four, okay? And uh, questions to consider from week one. Now, we're not going to, I'm not going to just ask you. You can call these out if you haven't done them yet. Um, then you're going to probably wake up in the morning with leprosy. No, I'm just kidding. No, you won't wake up in the morning with leprosy. In fact, you can fill them in right now. Yeah. And if you haven't done them yet, it's okay. I still love you. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm going to like you a lot. I'm, well, what's a lot, right? I mean, I'm going to try to like you. Okay. Oh, now I'm going to know from the Bible I'm supposed to like you. How's that? We settle for that? No, I'm just kidding. Okay, number one. Read through the Chicago Statement on Biblical Hermeneutics. Check that off. Good. And the reason I included the Chicago Statement on Biblical um, Inerrancy and this document as well is because they do go together. They're, one was produced just, I think, three or four years after the second one, and the way they did it was just really, really good. So it's a, it's a great study in itself just to read through there and the way they did it with affirmations and denials. And uh, you can, you're going to see they touched on pretty much the same issues that we're talking about here. When they, when they went through those. And it's a good thing to just go back and look at the history of them and even go back and it's not in, in your copy, but you can go and find the signatories to them and see who was uh, way back then, men who were uh, supporting the inerrancy of Scripture and then later on the hermeneutics that came out of it. And you see it sort of follows the same pattern that we saw, right? Our hermeneutics are built on what the Bible is, the inerrant authoritative word of God, and so they produced the statement on inerrancy, and then two or three years later on hermeneutics. It only makes sense. So number two, according to Jesus, in his prayer to his Father, God's word is truth. And the means the Spirit of God will use to sanctify his disciples. So here again, we see these two kind of categories over and over again. We saw them in Psalm 19, a statement about the nature of Scripture and then what it will accomplish, right? 
those are always there. It doesn't just say something about the Word of God. It talks about the Word is this, and here's what it'll do, and all those different ways. And of course, John 17, 17 from the high priestly prayer of our Lord is one of the great clear statements about the nature of the Word of God. Number three, Paul said that all Scripture is theopnistos, or God-breathed, and we saw that verse, 2 Timothy 3.16. As you study your Bible, would you ever expect God to have any bad breath? I'm not trying to influence your vote here or anything, but, uh, you know, vote your conscience. Number four, in 2 Peter 3.15 and 16, Peter refers to Paul's letters as hard to understand, and Scripture, right? He calls, he have one apostle saying that Paul's writings are like the other Scriptures, okay? So there you have a, a, an intra uh, or a uh, apostle to apostle affirming the nature of what Paul was, was writing. And number six, or number five, in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul commends the church of Thessalonica for receiving his teaching, not as the words of men, but as the the word of God. Yeah, and remember, his teaching. So it's not just limited to the inscripturated word or letters that he wrote. When Paul taught, he was teaching the word of God. And number six, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Yahweh makes his great foundational covenant with Abraham and his descendants. When Paul quotes verse 3 of that passage in Galatians 3.8, he says that the Scripture proclaimed. In Exodus 9.16, Yahweh speaks to Pharaoh a severe warning. When Paul quotes that verse in Romans 9.17, he says, the Scripture says to Pharaoh. For Paul, who is writing spirit-breathed Scripture, when Yahweh speaks, the Scripture speaks. And when the Scripture speaks, Yahweh is speaking. Yes. And of course, a classic statement from B.B. Warfield, the Bible is the Word of God in such a way that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Okay? And then number seven, according to the, the reading, uh, Zuck pages 16 through 18, with a sound interpretive system, we can overcome six gaps. They are, number one, Time, number two. Okay, culture, yeah. Number two, I think the second one he lists is space. And number three, customs. Number four, language. Number five, writing. Number six, all these gaps. Um, The time or chronological issues, space, geographic, customs, cultural, uh, language or linguistic gaps, writing or literary gaps, and then spiritual, of course, the supernatural. Okay. Any questions you might have on any of those? Okay. Page five. Tonight we're going to be talking about evaluating interpretive systems, and um, we're we're basically going to boil it down to two basic schools of interpretation that uh, are ancient. One of them was from the city of Antioch, and the other one was from the city of Alexandria in northern Africa. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11, 
and we'll just sort of get things rolling here a little bit. Acts chapter 11. One of the main reasons we're doing this, of course, is so that we um, can be sound interpreters of the Bible. And uh, let me see here. Oh, okay. I haven't tried this out here. I'm not sure. Oh, there we go. Last time we talked about the origin of the, the term hermeneutics, you know, from the Greek term hermeneo. And uh, where it did not come from was from a guy named Herman, okay? It, it, there he is right there. There's Herman. Now, Herman read the sign, okay? He read the sign and made an interpretation, and then he made a practical application of the sign, okay? Wonder what went wrong here. It, how well did he interpret that? Probably not too well. We might come back to this later on. Um, there's kind of a grammatical issue there, you know. Um, we'll be talking about a little feature of the text and a basic kind of a general rule of thumb that when you want to find the referent to, let's say, the word it, you look for the nearest antecedent or that which comes before. So you work your way back upstream, and the first word you run into is not dog there. So that was a mistake in the interpretation that he made. And, of course, then he did not make the correct application, right? So you have to observation. And these are the three tools that are going to be in the toolbox. Observation, interpretation, application. And uh, I don't know, Herman, I think he understood what he was doing. But uh, he's the bad example we're not going to follow. Well, Acts chapter 11. Let's look at verse 19 through 30. And the city of Antioch, starting in verse 19, now the church was born on the day of Pentecost. It uh, started out preaching and teaching, and as you know, it came under persecution. Uh, Stephen was uh, stoned to death as the church uh, began to be persecuted. And when we get to chapter 11, the the gospel has already gone out to the Gentiles, and that's been established that the gospel is moving from Jew to Gentile. That is a major, major theme in the New Testament. Okay, that, That's a gigantic theme in the New Testament. If you get that down, it'll help you to interpret the entire New Testament. Okay, Virtually everything in the Bible in the New Testament has to do with the movement of the gospel from Jew to Gentile in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, it's just absolutely critical. Even something like the Gospel of John. You say, well, John, didn't his uh, Gospel account primarily focus on the deity of Jesus Christ? Yes, that's a major theme. But John, Paul tells us in Galatians that John was the apostle to the Jews, to the circumcised. He's writing to Jewish people as a Jewish apostle. And so when, when he starts his Gospel account in the beginning, that's going to really uh, be an echo of Genesis 1 for the Jewish people. And then when you go down through his prologue, the first 18 verses, and you see that repetitive theme, world, 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 he was in the world, not a world, world. And even when you get to verse 29, you have John the Baptist pointing Jesus at the, uh, at the river saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay? It's like God is saying, hello, you Jews getting this? The gospel's moving from the Jews to the world. And um, it's just a critical thing to see. And this is something that the Holy Spirit is doing all through the New Testament, and particularly in the book of Acts. The movement of the gospel from Jew to Gentile. 
even to the point that he had to basically expel them out of Jerusalem to get them to go through the persecution. So in verse 19 of chapter 11, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyrus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of the men, them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Now these would be uh, Greeks, Gentiles, also preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and great and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So even though there was a persecution, even though they were scattered, they were taking the gospel to the Gentile world, and God was blessing it. Verse 21, is, uh, it's one of the many um, uh, progress reports that you can see. Sometimes things look very grim, very bad, and yet shortly thereafter, God gives a progress report. All these people are coming to the Lord. And then the report came, of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. There's another progress report. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Very interesting. Why do you think he went to look for Saul? He's a godly man. He's a smart man. He could have stayed in, in, uh, uh, in the city there and taught the people, but he went to go find Paul. Yep, that would be a good reason. And Paul is also the apostle to the Gentiles, right? Bam, 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 bang the drum for the Abrahamic covenant there. The gospel moving out to the Gentiles. And Antioch is going to be the place where that begins to happen, as we're going to see. And also, Paul was a master teacher. He was an, he was an expert in the Old Testament. He was, had been a Pharisee, which meant he would have basically memorized the Old Testament. But now that he's saved, he knows what the Old Testament was all about, right? And so uh, it only makes sense for him to go get him. And uh, then it says... Verse 26, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Okay. Um, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas and Saul are going to take this gift down to the church in Jerusalem from, from all the way up in the city of, um, the city of Antioch. Um, remember that Antioch, oh, there's Herman. We don't need to see him. I'm going the wrong direction here. There we go. Here's a, uh, a map of the, the Mediterranean. Disregard the colors. It's hard to find a map to reproduce that's not all busy, but this one is uh, about the least busy I could, I could find. So you can see the city of Antioch. It's in the area that we would call Syria at this point in time, north of Jerusalem. And uh, there it is right there. 
And there is another Antioch called Pisidian Antioch that we're going to see mentioned in Scripture. Look at chapter uh, 12 and this should be chapter 13. Chapter 13. And look at verse... Well, we'll just start at the top because this is um, very important what happens here. Um, in the meantime, there's, there's more persecution. Uh, Herod gets uh, eaten by worms. And then verse 24, another progress report up in, verse, up in chapter 12. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Okay, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. There's a little grammatical feature there in verse 2. We're going to come back and look at that when we talk about grammar. Uh, there's a little teeny tiny word there. that it, It's in the Greek text, and it comes right after the word set apart. Okay, You don't see it. It doesn't show up in your text. Just a little particle of a word. In fact, it's so small that the grammarians call it a particle. You know, It looks like something on the page. It's actually a word that means now, like right now. This construction is a sense of immediacy. Uh, Don't wait. Do this now. The Holy Spirit set apart for me right now Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, did they get it? They got it loud and clear. After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, verse 4, being sent out by who? The Holy Spirit. See, they recognized exactly what was going on here. They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And uh, I'm going to kind of jump over that because uh, the Apostle Paul confronted him about his, uh, his uh, lying and paganism. And then look at verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And so that's the, that's the, uh, that's the other one there, Pisidian Antioch. It's just right north of that bay right there. And uh, if you follow that valley to the west, you will come to, um, it's, this is now, of course, um, western Turkey. There's a valley there called the Lycus Valley with the Lycus River, and there's three churches there in three small towns, uh, Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. They're mentioned at the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians, and of course, Laodicea is pretty famous from uh, being confronted in the Revel- book of Revelation by our Lord. So this is the other Antioch in Pisidia. Historians say that there were at least 17 towns named after uh, Antiochus, called Antioch. These two were the ones that 
became more prominent. Okay, But the key to understanding what we're talking about here is that Antioch in Syria, uh, it's also called Antioch on the Orontes River, or Antioch on the Orontes, um, became the focal point of the missionary effort. And it also, because Paul was there and Barnabas was there and these godly men were there teaching these people, he not only taught them what the Bible said, they taught them certainly how to interpret it, right? They would have had to do that along with teaching them the gospel and all of the other things that they were... To have the Apostle Paul there for a whole year, um, they were well-grounded. So Antioch became the focal point of what became known as the literal method of biblical interpretation. And uh, here's just a historian's rendition of the uh, town. The Orontes River runs through there, and uh, you can see some of the features there. And um, that became the focal point of uh, the missionary effort. And uh, different than Pisidian Antioch, okay? So that's, that's the one we're talking about. This school of interpretive thought came from Antioch. It had as, at its foundation apostolic doctrine, okay? Very important to remember. Okay, so let's look at ch- uh, page 5. We're going to talk about the literal method um, that came from the school of Antioch. And there's some other definitions in the back of your, uh, your notes and um, there's a little definition of what we're talking about here. Literal from the Latin means of letters. So it's a, you can tell it's a very particular way of looking at something and interpreting it. Uh, and it led to the sense of exactness, suggesting something is to the letter. Okay? And uh, basic dictionary definition, the natural or usual construction and implication of a writing or expression following the ordinary and apparent sense of words, not allegorical or metaphorical. Okay, then that's just a secular dictionary definition. And um, here is a quote that's uh, pretty well known. This is from uh, Dr. David L. Cooper. This was published in a, in a series of books that he did in 1945. His date of birth, 1886, died in 1965. So you can sort of see what his lifespan was. But, uh, but an incredible scholar. You can find his work online and his books and everything. And this is a classic statement about how you interpret Scripture. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and the axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. Okay, We're going to be talking about that more, but that is a very sound, basic statement of what it means to Interpret the Bible, and what you're going to see repeated through all of these definitions, normal, regular usage of words, and so on. And it's just basically letting the Bible say what it says without trying to impose on it or see something other than what the author put there, okay? Which was going on, and it has all through history. So if we go back in time, Irenaeus, you're going to run across a lot of these names that uh, we talked about when we went through the history of uh, theology. You're going to recognize some of these people. And uh, here's a quote from Irenaeus. A sound mind will eagerly meditate upon those things which God has placed with the power of mankind and will make advancement in them, rendering the knowledge of them easy to him by means of daily study. These things are such as fall plainly under our observation, 
and are clearly and unambiguously in express terms set forth in the sacred scriptures. So there again, this idea of right on the surface, the plain meanings of words, the normal usage of words and language that you read. And then we move into the Reformation time, the Reformation interpreters. Uh, Here's a quote from Dr. Pentecost in his great book, Things to Come. The whole Reformation movement may be said to have been activated by a return to the literal method of interpretation of the Scriptures. Okay? And I think we mentioned it last time. Before there was a Reformation of doctrine, you know, you talk about the Reformation, you talk about the, the doctrines, right? That's kind of the big topic of discussion. But remember, they never would have had any Reformation of Catholic doctrine, doctrine if they hadn't had a Reformation of hermeneutics. Okay? That's how they got there. They had to reform the hermeneutics, and they went back to a literal, contextual, historical, grammatical methodology to wind up with their conclusions. Remember we said last time, hermeneutics is is your methodology. It's the pathway you take to get to your doctrinal conclusions. And that's what happened with the Reformation. And, um, for example, here's William Tyndall. Thou shalt understand, therefore, that the Scripture hath but one sense, which is the literal sense. And that literal sense is the root and ground of all and the anchor that never faileth. Same thing. He did what he did because he had an understanding of the text of Scripture that he interpreted literally. Okay, And then, of course, Martin Luther. Every word should be allowed to stand in its natural meaning, and that should not be abandoned unless faith forces us to it. Very similar to what... uh, Dr. Cooper said, you know, take it literally unless something in the text or context forces you not to. We're going to be talking about what some of those things might be. But here's uh, Luther. Uh, that's how he got where he got doctrinally, because he applied that to the Word of God. Now, many of these reformers took that position, but they weren't uh, consistent with it. We're going to be talking about that a little later on. Um, they took certain uh, passages that way, but then in other areas they didn't. But at least at this point, and with what they what they did reform, and they didn't reform all of Catholicism, right? We know that. But uh, what they did reform, uh, we owe them a great deal. And remember what they were involved in. They were inside that massive structure, that Catholic structure that not only controlled your religious life, it also controlled your civil life, right? And so if you were accused of blasphemy, you very well could be executed for treason, you know, and people were. And um, the, the power structure that was there, yeah, we owe these men a lot for what they did reform, even though they weren't complete in the Reformation. Uh, you know, back then, when you preach and teach publicly that the Pope is not the head of the church, the head of the church is Jesus Christ, okay? You're throwing down the gauntlet big time. I mean, you don't have the luxury of going off into a, a, a theological library and writing your doctoral dissertation and sitting around discussing these things. They're coming for you, okay, because you're threatening the power structure. So what they did was quite amazing. And, of course, our country, I'm convinced uh, the founding of our nation was built primarily on the Puritans' understanding of these things, why we supposedly supposedly have a separation of powers. Total depravity. They did not trust a single man to have all that collected power, so they separated the power structure and uh, thus founded our country. That's the way it's supposed to operate anyway. But um, also John Calvin. 
Let us know then that the true meaning of Scripture is the natural and obvious meaning, and let us embrace and abide by it resolutely. Okay? Commentary on Galatians. And again, another uh, comment from John Calvin. It is the first business of the interpreter to let his author say what he does say instead of attributing to him what we think he ought to say. That's the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. Okay? One is to draw out of Scripture, which is how you're supposed to handle the Word of God. You're supposed to handle any doctrine, any document that way. Remember the stop sign? What's it say? What's it mean? And how do we, how do we apply it? Same thing with uh, Herman up here, you know. He did not do this. So at least these men in this area were committed to a, uh, um, a, um, a hermeneutical methodology that was literal and let the Bible say what it actually says, okay? And then the post-Reformation interpreters, again from uh, Dr. Pentecost's book. It's a great book. It's a book on prophecy, but he spends the first 44 pages talking about hermeneutics. And uh, and then he winds that section up by talking about interpreting prophecy. So it's a very, very profitable book to read. Uh, the post-Reformation period was marked by the rise of men who followed closely in the footsteps of the Reformers themselves in the application of the literal or grammatical historical method of interpretation. Okay, And then from a Reformed theologian, Louis Burkhoff wrote, you know, his classic Reformed uh uh, theologian wrote his um, systematic theology, I think, back in the 1930s. It's still considered one of the classic uh, Reformed works. He's a covenant theologian. But here's what he says. The abiding fruit of this period is the clear consciousness of the necessity of the grammatico-historical interpretation of the Bible. Okay, And um, again, you can find places where m- these guys don't practice that same hermeneutic consistently, but they certainly did to arrive at what they did arrive at doctrinally, right? The recovery of the doctrines of grace. And so uh, we owe them an awful lot for that. So that's the literal method and had its founding in Antioch, in the school of Antioch. And um, they uh, can track the, the methodology right straight back to apostolic teaching in the in the city of Antioch, and then they, and God used them and moved them out into the world from there to share the gospel. Okay, as far as I could tell, He did not do the same thing with the city of Alexandria and the methodology that they came up with. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, any thoughts that you might have so far? Now, remember, we're going to talk a little more about the literal. When we say literal and how they're using it, they're not. That doesn't mean you deny the figures of speech that the Bible is rich in and all of those things. Um, all you're doing is when you see a figure of speech in the scriptures, you know that it, it in some way is communicating an actual literal biblical truth, right? We saw that and Dave took us through Proverbs, right? All the Proverbs are God's word and they all teach you something that's there, even though they're using figure, different figures of speech. And a lot of that is because people didn't have their own copy of the word of God. And probably couldn't have read if they had one. So these things oftentimes are, are uh, portability mechanisms that are built into Scripture. We're going to be talking about that uh, a little later on, too, as well. So by the grace of God, he, he built in some things that made it easier to remember the biblical truths by figures of speech and different kinds of structures and things like that.
Okay, well, what about the biblical interpreters? Here's where we are really going to kind of zero in on our, our purposes today. And uh, right up the top there, there's a, a quote from Dr. Chow. I mentioned him last time. He just did a really fine job on this book. Um, the Hermeneutics of the Biblical Writers, subtitled Learning to Interpret Scripture from the Prophets and Apostles. So we're back to the biblical writers. How did they interpret the Word of God? That's going to be our model. I think that's pretty safe, don't you think? I don't go consult somebody uh, that uh, doesn't know anything about the Bible, who's really smart and wise. I, I go right to the Scriptures to find out how did these people interpret the Word of God. So Dr. Chow says from page 22 of his book, the prophetic hermeneutic, in other words, the interpretive methodology of the prophets, continues into the apostolic hermeneutic, which is the Christian hermeneutic. So you see the continuity that's there? So if, if your hermeneutic is how these guys interpreted the Bible, um, and you work on that as your model, that's a safe place to be. Okay? It's a safe place to start. None of us do it perfectly or anything close to it. But if you don't do this, you're not going to get it. Okay, You're going to be all over the map. And um, history proves that to be true. Well, um, I have a little note here to myself that I scribbled. Maybe I'll get one of you guys to interpret it. <laughs> <clears throat> Let's start with Moses. Let's go clear back to the Pentateuch. Okay, Moses. Moses reminds the Israelites to pay close attention or listen. You see this a lot in Scripture, right, in the Old Testament. Listen. In fact, the famous Deuteronomy 6, the, what became kind of the theme verse of the nation of Israel, the, what's called the great Shema, because the first word is listen, hear, listen. Uh, Shema, Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, and so on. Um, it, because they were learning by listening. They didn't have copies of Scriptures. They had to have something um, spoken to them so that they could understand it. But what he does there, Deuteronomy 4.1 and also 6.4 and following, in the land, disobedience results in cursing. Leviticus 26, chapter 26, talks about that. And Deuteronomy 27.11 and following, obedience results in blessing. Deuteronomy 29.9 and then 18 through 20. Pretty severe. Better pay attention, better listen. Deuteronomy, remember the, the Pentateuch, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The, the law was first given at Sinai, right? And then 40 plus years went by and that generation died out wandering in the wilderness. Deuteronomy, Deutero, second Namas law. So the second giving of the law, they're right up to the, to the border of the promised land. So he's telling them again, when you go into the promised land, you better obey the law of God. And so Deuteronomy not only is the second giving of the law, it's also a theological commentary on the rest of the Pentateuch. Okay. So if you have, if you read Leviticus 26, that chapter tells you the relationship between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, because there's a whole series of threats there. And yet it also injects the promise that even though, even though you do that, I will bless you. Okay. So that's the overarching Abrahamic promise that's in, in place. And that's a transgenerational covenant. And it's a unilateral covenant. 
Abraham didn't have any obligations. Remember, he was put in a trance, and God himself, by himself, passed through the, the severed pieces of the animal. God is the only one that has the obligation to fulfill the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And it's and those are promises. And promises aren't transferred to other people, by the way. But Leviticus tells you the relationship between the Mosaic covenant with all those threats. Um, the land is theirs. They have the land. But their blessing within the land is going to depend on their obedience to the Mosaic covenant. Okay, uh, even even we know about the the um, the seventy year captivity. Well, they were brought back, and the only way they were brought back into their land was because God was fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. Deuteronomy twenty eight is a commentary on Leviticus chapter twenty six, but this required a careful literal understanding and application of God's word. Your life depended on it. And then Joshua, moving on, entering the promised land, the Israelites are to speak and meditate on the book of the law, resulting in their obedience and their blessing. Chapter 1, and verse 8 and following. Actually, 7 and 8 are the two verses. Yeah, see, so he's reminding them of what Moses said. They're entering into the land. And, And again, very, very severe warnings. Um, required a literal interpretation and application of God's Word. And then, prophet Isaiah, he calls people to hear the Word of the Lord in chapter 1, verse 10. Hear it, listen, listen, pay attention to it, and to consult God's Word and not mediums and necromancers. Chapter 8, verses 18 through 20. Yeah, I mean, here they had that history with God and God leading them, God providing for them. They saw audio-visual graphic representation of what God could do and did do. And yet, you're going to go consult a medium and necromancers? You know, people that commune with the dead? You better pay attention to God's Word. And we did see last time Isaiah 66, verse 2, the one that God will look to and how to approach His Word Um, with uh, a contrite heart and with trembling. This required them to know the literal difference between God's word and a necromancer, or God would literally kill them. And that's what he did on occasion. And then Jeremiah the prophet, after calling out woe to Israel's false shepherds, chapter chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, he references Isaiah's prophecy. So here you have a prophet interpreting a prophet of the final king and his righteous shepherding of God's flock, when they are literally restored to their promised land in literal salvation. God is going to carry out the new covenant with the nation of Israel at, uh, when He comes back and uh, they will be literally saved. And then as we get down to Daniel 9, a very famous passage, Daniel interprets Jeremiah's prophecy that Jeremiah gave in 25, 1-14 of the 70 years captivity uh, remember, Daniel was taken in the early um, deportation all the way up to Babylon. He's up there, and uh, <clears throat> eventually he gets copies of Scripture. And that Scripture included Jeremiah's prophecy of the length of the captivity, what it was going to be, and it was 70 years. So how about Daniel 9, 1 and 2? 70 years. He took 70 years to be 70 years. Most scholars think that he probably at that point in time had been there maybe 68 thereabouts, 
And he's counting up the years saying, we're going home. We're going back. And the first thing he does, he prays a prayer of repentance, calls the people to repentance, and that big, long, extensive prayer. And the reason was he thought they were going to go back and the kingdom was going to be reestablished. Okay? Very much like the disciples in Acts 1.6. Is it at this time? And what has to happen? He, he has to have a visit from Gabriel to straighten out the timing of it, right? All the, the next passage where Gabriel talks about the different periods of time and so on. Well, he was right about the prediction, what he understood from the rest of Scripture, that the kingdom will be restored. He was just wrong about the timing. God is not about giving people the time of these things. So, But he understood that 70 years to be exactly 70 years. And then Matthew in the New Testament. Um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to have you turn there. Look at that on your own. Matthew's Gospel opens up. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. Son of David, son of Abraham, okay? The first thing he does is connect three dots. Abraham got the promise that he would have a progeny, okay? That's the seed promise. But he can't see down through history. But when Matthew's gospel opens up, Matthew's looking back. He knows who Jesus is. He was a a disciple of Jesus. He saw the fulfillment. He saw the crucifixion, the resurrection. And so his gospel opens up by connecting those three dots, Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Okay, So it's a straight line, right straight back in fulfillment of, of God's word. And also the genealogies that follow establish the messianic credentials as the virgin born Messiah. And what he says there in um, verse 22 of chapter 1, at the end of that passage, very key to understanding everything he's just said, Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay, So he's validating the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy concerning the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, And he took those things literally. This is the literal fulfillment of what the prophet said. And how about the Apostle Paul? First Timothy he quotes Deuteronomy twenty-five four, and Jesus' words in Luke ten seven, and calls them both Scripture, demonstrating the continuity of his own words with the Old Testament and with with what Jesus literally taught. So Jesus taught literally First Timothy five seventeen and eighteen. That is, in Second Timothy, Paul reminds. Timothy of his childhood training in the sacred writings. Now, we looked at these last time. The God-breathed nature of all Scripture in 3.16, and that he is to preach the Word. So he uses three different words to describe the Scriptures, three synonyms. And um, if you take away that big black four that's there, you can see the continuity of what he's saying there. He's, he's talking about what it did in Timothy's life to lead him to salvation. He's talking about the nature of it. It is God-breathed. And then he tells him, preach it. Okay, That's a, There's continuity right there through, through that whole thing. There's also another little grammatical issue there. Um, uh, young uh, Andy Stanley in his book famously said that Christians need to decouple themselves from the Old Testament. Well, Paul's talking about the Old Testament right there. That's all he could be talking about. That's all they had. Okay? And grammatically there, there is no article with the first reference to the word. There is no article with the second. But when he says preach the word, the article is there. That particular use of the article means that he's reaching back. It's called an African use of the article or article of previous reference. 
he's reaching back to the other references and saying, this is all God's word and you need to preach it. Okay. So, um, Andy Stanley is wrong about that. Uh, how interesting that he would want to separate people from the word of God. Paul doesn't do that. He says, it saved you. It's God breathed and you need to preach it. Okay. Well, and then Peter, um, I'll let you guys read that on your own there, but it's a literal understanding of scripture. He refers people to remember the predictions of the holy prophets and so on, and remember them literally. Jesus, again, Matthew 12, 38 through 42. Historically, liberals kind of mock the story of Jonah, you know. They say, well, it's kind of a children's story. It makes for cute little cartoons and things like that. But, you know, it probably didn't happen. A fish eating a guy like that. How did Jesus consider Jonah? Was he an historical figure to Jesus? Yes, he was. Okay. And even down to the number of days that Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so shall the Son of Man be. He compared it to his own time in the tomb, right? He interpreted the story of Jonah literally, and uh, he interpreted the numbers literally as well. Passage, as he read, also includes very detailed prophecies meant to be taken literally, okay? So this is just a... Uh, just a brief survey of the number of passages you could find. Um, actually, Dr. Chow has lots and lots of them in his book. He really did a thorough uh, study of this whole issue of the continuity between how the prophets interpret the prophets, how the apostles and disciples interpreted the Old Testament, and how Jesus did, and how the early church did. So um, we're safe in doing it the way they did. Well, down at the bottom there, Dr. Pentecost, again from his book, it would be concluded then from the study of history of the history of interpretation that the original and accepted method of interpretation was the literal method which was used by the Lord, the greatest interpreter, and any other method was introduced to promote heterodoxy. Therefore, the literal method must be accepted as the basic method for right interpretation in any field of doctrine today. Okay? It's a great statement. One of the things he says there in any field of doctrine today. And uh, we're going to talk about various fields of doctrine. Uh, I think we should have time tonight. Okay? Any thoughts or questions you have about the literal method? All right. Let's look at page 7 real quickly. The allegorical method, the school of Alexandria. Let's see if I can avoid... Uh, uh, no. There we go. There's Alexandria. It's down there, North Africa, on the western part of the Nile Delta. And um, you can see why there would be a city there. There's fresh water flowing back behind it. And it has this absolutely fantastic natural harbor there that uh, ships could come in off the Mediterranean and dock there and park there. So it was a great place for commerce. And um, at the top of that, you see it says Pharaoh's Lighthouse. They built a lighthouse there. This is an artist's rendition that could be seen for miles way out into the Mediterranean. I believe it might have been one of the seven wonders of the world at the time. It was fantastic. And they had it illuminated and, and it drew the ships in. And um, there's another artist's rendition of the, the city. This one was made, I think, in the late 19th century. But that great natural harbor there, which was very important um, when all you have is sailing ships, right? And... Um, uh, 
it became the, the seat or the city of the allegorical method of interpretation. Now, there are some other definitions there in your appendix of the thing, but here's from the Oxford English Dictionary. A story, poem, or picture which can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, typically a moral or political one. The word comes, late Middle Ages, through Old French and Latin, from the Greek allegoria, from allas, other, and agoria, speaking, okay? But here's from, uh, this is a, uh, a good interpreter, and this is Interpreting the Bible. That is a good book on hermeneutics by A. Berkeley Mickelson. He says, in the allegorical method, a text is interpreted apart from its grammatical historical meaning. What the original writer is trying to say is ignored. What the interpreter wants to say becomes the only important factor. Okay, And one of the, one of the things that happens with this is the meaning of the of the text is the text, okay? And the authority of the Word of God is the text. When you separate the meaning from the text through allegorical interpretations, then you separate the the people, the person from the authority of the Word of God because you don't have you don't have an understanding of what the authorial intent was, okay? And uh, what the interpreter wants to say becomes the only important factor. Uh, this has led to all kinds of issues and problems throughout the history of the church. And uh, even people sitting around having a Bible study and somebody will read a text and then say, well, what do you think it means? Or, what, do you, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? And they think those are legitimate Bible studies. And nobody has the same interpretation, but nobody thinks anything about it. I, I have sat through a Bible study like that one time, just one time. And... Uh, my poor wife, she sat through it too, you know, and uh, the guy would read the passage and then say, well, what do you think that means? And yes, Bob. And Bob would say, well, I think it means this. And Bob didn't have a clue. And anybody else? And Mary, what, would you, what do you think? And Mary would say what she thought it meant. And what these all have in common, and every single time that happened, what the guy would do, he would just kind of schmooze them. Thank you, Bob. I really appreciate your input. Mary, you know, and she would say what she thought it meant was wrong. Well, thank you, Mary. Thank you for sharing, you know. This kind of went on. It was kind of a psychological schmoozing party, you know. And I sat there and I thought to myself, okay, where are you? Where are you? I know you're here because those kind of things attract a certain kind of person. I know you got to be here. And it went on a little while and pretty soon uh, this guy over in the other side of the circle, he raised his hand and when the facilitator called on him, the guy picked up his Bible and he stood up. And I said, bingo, there you are. And uh, he didn't know what it meant either. So it was just an exercise in, in wasted time, you know. And got in the car and put the kids in the back. And I, my wife didn't say anything. And I said, well, what would you think, honey? And, and she was looking out the window. She looked over at me. And, and she was the master of the two-second stare, okay. And she just looked at me. And then looked back out the window. And I said, yeah, me too. <laughs> but it, it, it was a good lesson to, to, to see that because, you know, this is not how you treat God's Word. It has a meaning, and we need to work hard at finding out what that meaning is. Well, the allegorical method. Uh, the history of it, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. You guys can go through this. But the, probably Philo, who was a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, a Jewish guy, he developed this incredible system of interpretation. Uh, the four rivers of Genesis 2, 10 through 14, are four parts of the human soul. It names the rivers, you know, 
the, the Pishon, the Gihon, the Euphrates, and uh, Tigris, I think is the fourth one. And that's all it says. It doesn't say anything about being part of the human soul. Um, so where do they get these things? They, they just make them up for various reasons. And um, I think we had some of the history of this in, uh, when we studied through the history of theology. But it kind of got embedded in the, in the people that, that did it. They were thought to be very spiritual. If you could see something somebody else couldn't see, well, the reason that nobody else can see it is because it's not there, you know? And yet those people were considered really spiritual and, and that type of thing. And some, in some circles, they still are. Oh, he has the... And of course, this led right into Catholicism because people couldn't read. They did not have copies of Scripture. Who were they totally dependent on to, to tell them what the Bible said? The church, the priests. And until the Reformation, they had a grip on people. And um, you know the stories. Um, and they could get them to give money and do the whole thing. Uh, so it... it one of the cataclysmic events, of course, was the Reformation because people began to have uh, an understanding of what the Bible actually said. And in time-space history, there was also kind of a, uh, a um, it was like a perfect storm. The Gutenberg Bible, or a Gutenberg uh, Press had been invented by Gutenberg in 1436. Now that was about 80 years before Luther nailed his uh, 95... Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church. But it took time for the printing press to get functioning and get uh, popular and for people. But the, the ability to produce written material coincided pretty much with the Reformation. And so there was this explosion of, of uh, literature that went out. And uh, that was one of the things that really facilitated the Reformation was the, uh, the ability to have written material in your own hands. We take that for granted, right? Uh, and we're, we can access so much right now. But um, you have Origen, and then you have Augustine. Here's a comment from Bernard Ram from his great book on uh, interpretation. He justified allegorical interpretation by a gross misinterpretation of 2 Corinthians 3.6. He made it mean that the spiritual or allegorical interpretation was the real meaning of the Bible. The literal interpretation kills for this experimental reason, Augustine could hardly part with the allegorical method. Now, Augustine's a good example of some of these ancient people. You can find some very good things that they did, uh, very good things that they said, published, and wrote. But you can also find some things that are just absolutely train wrecks, you know, and this is one of them. Um, uh, that particular passage there is, is a crook's interpretum. People have used that a lot. It's, it's the one that says, where Paul says that the, the letter kills, right? But the Spirit gives life. I'll let you read that on your own. And uh, I've gone round and round with some Pentecostal folks about that. They would say to me, well, you, you people have the letter. You know, you're teaching and preaching the Word of God. The letter kills. We have the Spirit. You know, and they make this false dichotomy. But if they just read a little bit further, they would see that when Paul talks about the letter, he's not talking about the whole Word of God. He's talking about the commandments, and he says, written on stone that kills you because you can't keep it. And he's talking about soteriology there. So um, Augustine, you know, he grabbed a hold of that as well. Well, then, of course, Catholicism, um, the, the allegorical interpretation was, was part of what they did, and they were able then to keep control over people and control over the church until the Reformation and the people were able to see it and read it for themselves. And then, of course, the... The, uh, the fight was on. So 
Again, from Dr. Ram's great book, the bottom there. The allegorical system that arose among the pagan Greeks copied the Alexandrian Jews was next adopted by the Christian church and largely dominated exegesis until the Reformation, with such notable exceptions as the Syrian school of Antioch and the Victorines of the Middle Ages. The curse of the allegorical method is that it obscures the true meaning of the Word of God, and had it not kept the gospel truth central, it would have become cultic and heretical. In fact, this is exactly what happened when the Gnostics allegorized the New Testament. The Bible treated allegorically becomes putty in the hand of the exegete. Different doctrinal systems could emerge within the framework of allegorical hermeneutics, and no way would exist to determine which were the true. The only method of breaking an exegetical stalemate created by the use of the allegorical method is to return to the sober, proper, and literal interpretation of the scriptures. The allegorical method puts a premium on the subjective, and the doleful result is the obscuration of the Word of God. Okay, That's a great statement, and he just captures the history of it right there. You follow an allegorical method, you can make the Bible say whatever you want to say. And you also become the the arbiter of what the meaning is. Yeah. The Bible, God gave the Bible, and it's objective. Everybody can read it. Everybody can look at it. Uh, there's no one person who, who, or one group of people, no priesthood that can, can say, well, we have the meaning. Uh, you need to come to me to find out what it means. You can see it for yourself. That's the whole purpose of God giving the people his word. Okay? So that's kind of a quick trip through the allegorical method. Any thoughts or uh, questions you might have on that? There's some other things in the, back in your, um, some articles and so on back in the, the uh, appendix of your notes as well. Okay? We're, we're going to make it here tonight. Trust me. Okay. Sure. Because if no one can dogmatically say what it means, then everybody, we can all stay together because it means whatever everybody thinks it means. Or maybe we can... Oops. <laughs> What'd they say to that? <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, you, there's been so many movements, and even right now today, you can go find churches that do that every They're packed with people. It's very popular. No wonder they grow big, gigantic churches, because, I mean, it's, or you think they're going to actually drill down on what it means, and, and just like we saw from the prophets and by Moses, that's pretty tough language, you know. And um, it's offensive to the carnal mind. They don't want to hear that. That's that's, and the sad part of it is, if you don't, if you, if you don't want to hear the bad news, how do you hear the good news, right? I mean, if you you don't get the blessing of the the grace of God in salvation if you don't understand what you're saved from, you know. So it's a it's a vicious cycle, and um, thank God you can come to a church where the Bible is uh, held up high and there's a high view of Scripture and you can hear the Word of God taught every Sunday, right? Okay, how about a set of criteria for testing an interpretive system? How do you look at a, an interpretive system, any kind of interpretive system, even one from the Bible? Well, there was a book written uh, by a Christian scholar, David L. Wolfe, back in 1982. It's hard to believe it's been that over 40 years. And what he did, and it's a small book, and it's part of a, a series of books by uh, InterVarsity Press. And he took the Bible, and he drew out of the Bible itself these four rules creating a set of criteria for testing an interpretive system. 
and I'm just going to kind of move through them kind of quickly. You can certainly read them on your own. The top line there is kind of a basic dictionary definition, the one in italics, and then I kind of gave you a sort of a working definition. A valid interpretive system must be comprehensive, okay? You have to include all the data, complete and including everything that is necessary. It must include all the data or be applicable to all experience. All scriptures God breathed, so a valid interpretive system must include all of the Bible, and only a literal interpretive system or method can be applied to all of Scripture. And uh, the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian elders, he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. You can go to some churches for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, and you'd be surprised how narrow they are in what they teach. Uh, You might not ever hear anything from the Old Testament, you know, um, because for a variety of reasons. They can't handle it. Um, so you have to, a system has to be comprehensive. Second thing it has to be is congruent. Okay, The quality of being similar to or in agreement with something. It must fit the data. Once you collect the data, you have to, you have to exegete the data uh, so that your conclusion fits what it actually says. And we're getting down into the um, exegesis of texts. And uh, I have a theological illustration here about congruency, about fitting, okay? <clears throat> doesn't fit, doesn't fit, you know? Oh, it does fit, right? Okay? Um, so when you, when you exegete the text of Scripture and you draw out from the Scripture something, the meaning of something, and you're going to share it with people, it has to fit the text, Okay? And uh, this gets down into all kinds of things, the meanings of words and the, the grammar of the words and so on. That's going to impact the meaning of the words. Yeah, Dave, you can play with this later, okay? <laughs> I thought it was a new COVID mask. <laughs> <laughs> About as effective as the ones that we used to wear. So it's got to be comprehensive and it's got to be congruent. Your results have to fit. Only the literal interpretive method can exegete the scriptures like the prophets, apostles, and Jesus, we saw that, without importing from the outside the text or context allegorical, mystical, or spiritual meaning. And again, there's that quote from Daniel, uh, namely, 70 years. Okay. A third thing the system needs to be, it needs to be consistent. Not changing in behavior, attitudes, or qualities. It must not have any contradictions. To be consistent means there's no contradictions. There's no contradiction in the Word of God. How can there be? We're going to go back to what the nature of the Bible is. The nature of the Bible is built on the nature of the God who spoke it, right? And there are no contradictions in God. And so a a valid interpretive system must be consistent. And only the literal method of interpretation can be consistently applied to all of Scripture using sound exegesis without altering the methodology for certain genre or categories of Scripture or producing contradictory conclusions. From Genesis 1.27, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Jesus refers to this. In Mark 10, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus' literal observation, interpretation, and application of Genesis 127 to the Pharisees in Mark 10, perfectly consistent with Moses' meaning in Genesis. Okay, There's an excellent example of how you interpret the Word of God. little footnote here. 
couple of weeks ago, there was a transgender guy. And uh, this transgender guy was wanting to argue that, uh, in fact, I think I saw, I saw it on Twitter or X or whatever it is. And uh, he was so confident that God had made him that way. I don't know if you saw that. It, it was that God made him to be transgender. And to support that, he quoted this verse from Genesis 1.27. And here's what he said. God created man in his own image. That's me. In the image of God, he created him. I am created in the image of God, he said. God made me this way. What's wrong? Nate, what? Yeah, he was not comprehensive. He didn't finish the verse. If he would have finished the verse, God made them male and female. He conveniently left that part out, right? And um, I don't know if he did it on purpose or he found he found a verse that supported a statement that supported his presupposition. Okay, he didn't actually exegete that text, or it would have just totally refuted his whole proposition there. But sin is blinding, right? And uh, it's that blinding. You can have it written right on the page, and you just can't see it, and you you refuse to see it. But you have to be consistent. And the fourth thing. A legitimate interpretive system must be coherent. Coherent statement is reasonable and sensible. It must relate internally, make sense or result in a unified system. Okay, so it's comprehensive, includes all the Bible. And from cover to cover, this is a unified work. Okay, it's an amazing thing to think that this was written by 40 plus people over 1500 plus years and centuries and, and by all those different cultures and and kinds of people, and yet there's a unified story there. Only the literal method results in conclusions that make sense of the whole Bible and reflect the authorial intent of all the prophets, apostles, and Jesus himself. It demonstrates the amazing unity of the Bible and validates the Bible's own claim to be authored by God himself. Okay, Those are four criteria that must be a part of a valid interpretive system. Okay? A valid interpretive system must be comprehensive, congruent, consistent, and coherent. Okay? And um, these criteria, this is top of page 9, these criteria can be applied to a wide range of interpretive systems. That's why I liked uh, the statement by Dr. Pentecost, Therefore, the literal method must be accepted as the basic method for right interpretation in any field of doctrine today. Okay, so you can take these four criteria and apply them to a lot of different things. Several years ago, when I first did this, my favorite illustration was a crime scene investigation unit, okay, forensics unit. You know, they get a call to go out, and uh, there's a dead body out in an alley, and they go, they load up their stuff, and they go out there. And uh, here's some poor guy laying there dead. The, the police are, you know, putting the yellow tape around there. Well, they have to go over and figure out what's going on here. Of course, they pull out the cameras. One of the first things they do is they put on their gloves, right? If they're inside of a house, maybe, they'll put on an entire paper suit with booties and things on their head. Why? They don't want to get their stuff in the crime scene, okay? They don't want to eisegete that crime scene. You don't want your fingerprints on a murder weapon, Okay. And so uh, they also have to do what? They have to include all the data. They have to, to, all the pertinent data. They can't, if there's some shell casings over here, and the guy that went that way said, hey, i got some shell casings here, and this guy's 
already determined that the guy probably jumped off the building. You know, he's got a foregone conclusion. He says, no, nah, don't worry about those shell casings. This guy, I think he probably jumped. There's a building right there. You know, oh, that's too bad. He jumped out of the building. And this person over here, they're over there looking at a door, and there's a bloody handprint, and, and they're taking pictures. And he says, oh, don't worry about that bloody handprint. This guy jumped out of the building. He's not including all the data, right? And so it goes. Once they do get the data, they have to interpret it congruently. It has to match. If the coroner says the guy died of a heart attack, they can't determine that the guy you know, was murdered by somebody with a bow and arrow or something like that. Same thing. You can walk right down through these. And you can do the same thing. Investigative journalism. How about that? Shouldn't they include all the pertinent data on a story? And shouldn't they interpret that information congruently with what actually happened? It has to fit what actually happened, and uh, it has they can't have contradictions, you know, in the story, same thing, and it has to make sense. It has to have a coherence to it as well. That was my favorite illustration, a crime scene investigation. You could do the same thing with a medical diagnosis. How about a doctor? Got to include all the information, you know. Um, study of history, historians, and so on. And then in November of 2020, there was an election. And I thought, oh, I've got a brand new illustration, okay? Because an election is an interpretive system applied to a population of people, right? You're trying to figure out, do they want candidate A or candidate B, to make things simple. Okay, has to be comprehensive. You have to include all the data, do you not? You can't say, well, we're going we're gonna to include this precinct over here, but not those over there, right? And when you do get the data, you have to... It, you have to interpret it congruently. It has to fit what the actual uh, electors said they wanted to have, right? And uh, you also have, it has to be, there can't be any contradictions in there. And it has to make sense. It has to be coherent, you know? If the, if the entire county for the last 40 years has voted for one candidate's party, but all of a sudden they vote for this other one, that doesn't really make sense, does it? And if you have, uh, you know, 55,000 votes for candidate A, and there's only 4,000 registered voters in the whole county, that doesn't make sense, and it's not coherent or congruent or anything, right? And so uh, that became my next favorite one. But you can, you can think of this, and you can even think, I haven't added one here, you could probably think of a lot more, climatology, right? Mm -hmm. Got to include all the data, all the pertinent data. You have, to ha you have to congruently interpret that data, and so on and so forth. So um, a valid interpretive system should have all four of these criteria. And you can do this very same thing with, with the scriptures. You can, you can walk through it co coherently, congruently, consistently, and comprehensively. And the only way you can do that is with a literal method. And, of course, D there, a system of theology. You can test people's systems of theology. You'd be surprised how many uh, very sound theologians don't include all the scriptures. They just don't. And that puts them in a certain place in their theology and in their thinking. Okay? Did they include all the pertinent data, the text of scripture, history, and so on? Is it congruent? Does their exegesis of that data result in conclusions that fit the text? Are their conclusions free from contradictions? Because the Bible is, because God is, right? And is it coherent? Does their system produce results that make sense or a unified result of the whole Bible? Okay? And so uh, there at the bottom, Scripture is complete and has a single author who is sovereign over his creation, or comprehensive, 
and whose thoughts, intentions, and actions comprehensively fit his being and nature. So in other words, Scripture is congruent with God, right? And in whose being and actions in history, there are no contradictions, absolutely consistent. Now, we, some of us might say, well, you know, I saw how God dealt with this person. We didn't deal with me that way. But that's not God's problem. That's not a contradiction. That's a problem with me and my perception of reality. Or maybe I just can't handle the sovereignty of God to do what he chooses to do and the fact that he's absolutely righteous and just in everything he does. So it's never a, con- a lack of consistency with God. And all of his word forms a unified, coherent story. And since all interpreters of Scripture, in Scripture, interpret Scripture by the power of the same Holy Spirit who spoke, wrote Scripture, and protects it and perpetuates it and so on, using literal historical grammatical principles, we should too. Okay? Any thoughts or questions? And so sometimes it does come down to how do... How do I argue for what fits the text? This comes down to our exegesis of Scripture. Um, if you don't take into account what was written, then you're not going to wind up with in the right spot. Or if you, my favorite illustration is a stop sign. Uh, you line up 100 people and you say, what is that? Observation, that's stop sign, stop sign, stop sign. But you get one guy that says, ah, it's a slow sign. Um, Nate, you ever have anybody tell you that? <laughs> Ask some police officers and uh, law enforcement folks some of the stories they've heard, you know. They can tell you some rich stories. But that's still a stop sign, right? And that kind of comes back to what we saw so many times, the normal, usual understanding of the words. And um, so that's that's what it comes down to. And when what you're also going to have is that you will see they can't take that same interpretive methodology and go to another passage. They're going to be inconsistent, or they have to leave out major passages. They can't be comprehensive. Okay, um, You're going to find that all the time. I mean, that's part of what the problem is. People are not interpreting Scripture in the right way. Um, okay, anything else? Anybody else? Yeah. Exactly. And, and it comes back to, once again, you can have the Word of God, but if you don't have the Spirit... Remember the concomitant working of word and spirit, always together. If you just have the word of God um, and you don't have the spirit of God indwelling you, leading you, and guiding you, um, you're going to wind up the the transgender guy. That was his problem. Um, He thought he had a good biblical argument. Right there, right? It's right off the page of Scripture, isn't it? Isn't it right there in Scripture? Created in the image of God. That's me. So this is why I think we, we... we have to take into account all of Scripture, and we have to look at the biblical interpreters. I mean, I can't go appeal to somebody outside unless he has appealed to um, the biblical interpreters. That's why I say that's kind of the safe place to be. And then once you do that, um, if somebody says, well, I don't, I don't believe that, then um, we're done talking. My job is not to convince them. My job is simply to tell people what God says. And once we do that, if they reject it, then, uh, you know, you dust yourself off and go to the next one. You're always going to find people that do not like what the Bible says because it invades their, it, it, it 
their sin. They'll always have a they'll always have a theology that accommodates their sin, always, because it's an offense to the carnal mind. So we do the best we can, acknowledging that you know we're certainly not perfect. Uh, no claim to be perfect in how we interpret Scripture or teach it or preach it or anything else. But we don't have to be you know cultic or liberal in our in in, in our in default to not working hard at it. Simon. Well, um, I, I, I'm, there probably are a lot of theories out there. I think probably it just depends on uh, um, how much you know about what they did. Those guys were Catholic. He never wanted to reform the Catholic Church. Um, he wanted, he, he really didn't, he wanted to stay Catholic. They kicked him out. He left the Catholic Church because he was excommunicated. And so, um, I, there's a lot of questions about Martin Luther. <laughs> I mean, he started out being very con, uh, conciliatory toward J- the Jews. I mean, he wrote some some documents that basically chided his fellow Christians for how they treated the Jews. And he said, how can we expect them to come to Christ if we treat them this way? Because of the history of anti-Semitism within the Catholic Church. And yet, you know how he wound up his life. I mean, he was horrifically anti-Semitic at the end of his life. Um, you know, some of these things are almost a shrink question and not a theological one. It's it's hard to it's hard to say. A lot of forces on those people that we don't experience. I mean, what they did when they did it in the environment that they did it is pretty amazing. And I think we owe them a lot for that. But we also have to be honest and say they did not finish the job. So it's kind of up to us, you know, to continue to reform what needs to be reformed as we see it. So that's probably my best answer. Mainly, I don't know. I, it's hard to say. I think we have to we have to look at what they said and did and be honest about it. We can't cover it up or whitewash the things that are not biblical. Um, we saw in our study of, of the history of theology, so many of these guys, they said some really good things, but they were also just off the mark in so many places, you know. And, and other people, everybody's calling them great theologian. Remember, uh, Karl Barth, great theologian, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. This is not the Word of God, he said. It becomes the Word of God when the reader reads it and has some sort of an existential experience with it. Now, how in the world would you ever define that? You know, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, that, that, it is heretical, but how do you know when you have the right experience? So what what he did then, he removed the authority of Scripture from Scripture and put it up here. And so it becomes whatever you think it is. How did it feel to you? Kind of thing. Existentialism. You know? So, um, Okay, anything else, you guys? You've been patient tonight. This was a kind of a marathon. Yes, sir? Yeah, and I've never tried to work out the numbers, so I, I don't know that. And there are other issues, too, with even genealogies. Um uh, people lived a lot longer back then at certain points in time than they do now. So, and I'm not sure what the answer is, um, other than I can pretty well tell you that there's no contradictions in Scripture and that there is a good answer. I have had questions like that too um, about certain things, and then I'll read somebody that gives me an answer, and I go, "Okay, yeah, there it is." You know, so um, I'm not sure how that how that works out numerically, other than um, you know. I take it for what it says. I'm going to default to take the Bible for what it says every place rather than, you know, be quick to say, well, that's a contradiction or that's something else personally, you know. 
And then because time and time and time again, I have what I have seen, and as I continue to walk with the Lord, is that uh, where I thought maybe it didn't make sense, it was me that was not getting it. And as I found more comprehensively studied Scripture, then I could see where that does make sense. Um, so that's probably my best answer, maybe not a very good answer. Remember when Jason Lyle was here? And he was talking about the, the speed of light and how scientists say, well, the light coming from that planet had to travel so many gazillion, bazillion light years, you know, so that the universe is so old. Jason Lyle's a pretty sharp guy, and he had some pretty good answers as to why that's not necessarily true. The speed of light may not be constant and that type of thing. His answer was way above my pay grade, but uh, it was it was pretty sharp, so... You know, there are answers to all these things. We just may not see them at the time. Okay, anything else, guys? Next time, next time, we are going to start putting some tools in the interpretive toolbox. We're going to start with observation. Okay, we've already talked about it a little bit. Next time, we'll dig into it. So, uh, hope you enjoy the reading this next week. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.